What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to The Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth. It's been a little while since we've done an episode, I think three weeks, keep me honest here. I have no idea. You're always asking me to like check, but time is a flat circle for me. That's really rough because you do time better than I do time. Nope. Well, we are going to continue our series on Wes Anderson. If I remember correctly, we're doing a three-part series. That's the plan, yeah. Yeah, three-part series. So our last episode was about the Royal Tenenbaums. This week, I'm excited to talk about my personal favorite Wes Anderson movie, The Life Aquatic. Uh, Steve Zissou, something, something, something. The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. There we go. Yeah, that's how it goes. It's my favorite movie. I should know the title. It's my favorite, I should say, Wes Anderson movie. I should know the title, and I totally just goofed it already, which tells you where this podcast might be going off the rails before it even begins. All that said, I'm really, really excited to continue our discussion around Wes Anderson. I enjoyed talking The Royal Tenenbaums. And I think we're going to have some really interesting things to say about life aquatic. I do too. You know, we're going off the rails much like Steve and Team Zisu do on this adventure to get revenge against the jaguar shark. So I think that's absolutely apropos of the story. You know, thinking about the journey that we're going to be on with Wes, Wes Anderson, it is kind of interesting that we have chosen three films that are very much smack in the middle of his career, at least from this perspective that we have in 2023. So we're really looking at the heart of Wes Anderson's development as a director. And I love that we are looking at your personal favorite right now. We came from Royal Tenenbaums, which was my introduction to Wes Anderson, and it's certainly in probably my top three Wes movies. Uh, And then we're going to be moving on next week to my favorite Wes Anderson movie. And so I think think this is going to be a really special series and a special revelatory series for us. Well, when you said, hey, let's do a Wes Anderson um, series, I said, that's fine as long as we do Life Aquatic, which was not one that I think was on your radar to do. Um, If I recall correctly, when we were planning this out, I'm like, if we're talking Wes Anderson, we must talk Life Aquatic because... It's my favorite Wes Anderson movie. And it had been a long time since I've seen it. It had been a long time since I had interacted with it. And I really can't wait to dive in and discuss it and give it the old midnight myth treatment. But before I get too deep into it, Laurel, do your thing. Yeah, my thing is that we would love to hear from you. So please hit us up on social media. We're on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook, and we're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. We would just love to hear from you and chat movies and pop culture and history and mythology and philosophy and whatnot. You can also find us on the web at midnightmyth.com, and you can drop us a line there or find out about our other two podcasts, The Wheel of Ka, which is now reading Stephen King's The Talisman and getting ready to do their first episode on that, and also Sleep and Sorcery, which is my podcast that puts you to sleep with fantasy and folklore inspired original bedtime stories. Side note, if you haven't been following Sleep and Sorcery, I'm writing a book 
So follow us, stay in touch, get on our newsletter so that you can be the first to hear about updates. But I am releasing a book version of Sleep and Sorcery in spring of 2024, and I cannot wait to share it with you. So definitely keep in touch with us, and we will tell you what's coming from the Midnight Myth and its associated satellites. Awesome. On with the show. Thank you, Laurel. Shall we do our briefest of brief recaps? Take it away, Derek. This movie is about Steve Sisu, who is an oceanographer and he is a film documentarian who had gotten fame and notoriety. Notoriety? Notoriety. Notoriety. Wow, that's a tough word to say. Um, He had gotten fame and fortune through doing documentaries about the sea on his ship, the Belafonte. He finds himself at a bit of a midlife crisis when his latest documentary is not well received and his best friend and sort of second in command on the ship gets killed by a tiger shark, a shark that had never been seen before or documented before. And the movie starts with his tanking documentary, people thinking that the entire thing was a fake charade and Steve Sisu deciding he's going to set out on the Belafonte with one goal and one goal only find the shark and kill it for the purposes of revenge. Right before it killed his best friend, Estevan, he tagged it with a tracker. However, this is problematic because he's completely out of money. And then he meets a character named Ned who may or may not be his son from a previous affair Learning that Ned's mother had passed away, Ned wanted to come and seek out Steve Sisu, and Ned has a small but significant um, inheritance from the dead mother, which he invests in this adventure to go find the tiger shark, kill it to avenge Estevan. We learn so much about Steve Sisu along the way. There's another character who's a journalist named Jane who comes around and she's a pregnant woman in order to kind of document and do a cover story on Steve Sisu because she's been a lifelong Sisu fan, only to to be disappointed that he is old, he is creepy, and he is kind of psychopathic. Steve Sisu ultimately leads the Belafonte into the, the den of pirates as he takes them off course to save costs. He ends up robbing a fellow oceanographer's lab who ends up hunting him down. And then the Bond Company stooge, who is sent along by the bank to make sure everything's on the level, gets kidnapped by the pirates, resulting in a military siege of the pirate citadel to save the Bond Company stooge. All of this is happening that they're now close to the tiger shark, where Steve and Ned end up, who Ned is now having a romantic relationship with Jane, the pregnant reporter, and Steve Sisu was a little mad about that, considering that he wanted to sleep with Jane, Anyway, they end up taking the rundown helicopter up, and Ned, who was an airplane pilot, but not a helicopter pilot, ends up crashing it, in which Ned sadly dies from the crash. Steve, living through the crash, having lost his son, maybe not son, but he was just starting to develop a rapport, ends up finding the tiger shark. I'm promising I'm going to not cry and sees it and says, I wonder if it remembers me. He then returns back with a documentary, which is presumably a smashing success. He does not see the documentary. He sits outside and the movie ends where he grabs an 11 year old boy, puts him on his shoulder as he walks to the after party. And I'm tearing up just thinking about this movie. So Laurel, you say something now. Oh my goodness, Derek. We love you. I'm going to put my hand on your shoulder and I hope you feel the ghost of a dozen other hands on your shoulder right now because that might be just what you need. Excellent recap. Oh my goodness, this movie's not easy to recap. It's a jaguar shark. You were saying tiger shark, so I just have uh, to correct yes, you on that. I'm sorry. It is a natural, it's a natural mistake, so I forgive you. Tiger sharks are real they sharks. They are a real thing. Jaguar sharks are not. Yeah, um, but uh, it was a wonderful recap. This movie has everything, right? It's got fencing, fighting, true love, miracles, the whole shebang. Jaguar sharks, stop motion, fish. It's it's pretty remarkable. Um, you know, we usually start these conversations with the question of does this movie hold up? 
And I think that's a really particularly interesting question to ask with this movie because I know you have a pretty powerful emotional connection to it. I have a deep affection for it. But what we know is that it is consistently ranked among Wes Anderson's least popular movies, least favorably reviewed movies, worst movies, whatever words you want to use for it. For the most part, people consider this a low point in Wes Anderson's career. Now, I do think that the pendulum is just beginning to swing the other way in the last couple of years with this movie. I think there is a cult sort of appreciation that is growing for it. But I am curious, you know, this is your favorite movie of his, and yet it ranks really poorly on a lot of other people's scale of his career. What do you think your answer would be to does this hold up in light of that? You know, it's funny that you say that. When I said I wanted to do this movie, you did have a like a little bit of really that that's the one you are dead set we must do. And I'm like, no, that's the one. And I did not know, did not realize that most Wes Anderson fans, most critics consider this to be one of, if not his worst movie. That is not something that I understood before getting into prepping a Midnight Myth conversation around it. You know, when I first saw this movie, I had seen Rushmore and Royal Tenenbaums, but I didn't know who Wes Anderson was. I just knew, excuse me, that that this was a movie by the director of those two. It had starring Bill Murray, and it had him wanting to kill a fish. And I remember the trailer being seeing the, what is the scientific purpose of killing the, the, the shark? And Bill Murray going, revenge. And I knew, I'm like, okay, I'm seeing this movie. This movie looks right up my alley. And I found it, compared to the other two movies, to be a breath of fresh air. In the respect that the other two movies, Rushmore and Royal Tenenbaums, and I don't know if those are all the movies he had done before then. Those were just the ones I had seen, which I love, think are great movies. I thought that both of those movies had an air of emotional detachment. They were both movies that were very much parodying emotion and characters kind of being like living in this fantasy reality. Whereas the entire movie is the tragedy and rebirth of Steve Sisu. I felt that it had such an emotional core and center to it. Even when Steve Sisu is being silly and weird and aloof or psychopathic, it still was about this man trying to reconcile with the pain of his life and culminating with the death of Ned and then the successful documentary, I thought it hit home in a way that very few movies could hit home for me. Funny story, we were supposed to record this episode a few weeks ago, but it was also my birthday, and I couldn't talk about a movie where a father loses a son on my birthday, because I'm like, I can't do that. Yeah, you don't want to think about that. Yeah, Because now I have a son, right? And I, I told you this movie was going to be hard for me to talk about. I've been putting it off because I didn't want to talk about it, because this movie, I always had an emotional connection to it, I always kind of identified in particular with the Ned character, but now I identify with the Steve character. And I think it's emotional core, the way that it plays with comedy and tragedy and the way that it uses comedy and tragedy to rejuvenate the character of Steve Sisu is more necessary now in my life. It's more important to me now. And I think maybe more important to the world, I don't know. I don't know. You know, the world can judge for itself, but I think this movie absolutely holds up. I think it is a beautiful tale of, of fathers and sons. It's a beautiful tale of losing your connection to the natural world and losing the connection to what centers you and trying to reframe it and, and the ability to actually find it again despite the death and tragedy around you, I think is more 
important to me now than it was when I first saw it. It's hard for me to watch. Like, I don't see myself putting this movie on again anytime soon. But I think it is still a very important, very well-told, incredibly executed, and just personally really resonant story. I think that's beautifully said, and I really appreciate that, Derek. Um, you know, I, I've i said I think this movie uh, it is already undergoing a little bit of a critical reevaluation. I think it's due for more of that. I do think when we look back however many years from now on Wes Anderson's career, this one is going to be quite heavily critically reevaluated. Um, and I think there are a few reasons that it didn't necessarily resonate with audiences in the time that it came out, and yet it has only accumulated value over time. So if we think about it, right, it came out, it was the follow-up to Royal Tenenbaums, which was just an absolute darling, and a jewel box, and a dollhouse, and a beautiful fairy tale that carries a lot of the same emotional themes and the same story beats, narrative sort of arcs as Life Aquatic, and yet it resolves them in a much more refined and kind of simplistic fairy tale kind of way. The movie is still very complicated, but it does feel like the edges are sanded. It's like Life Aquatic with the edges sanded off, right? So even if you compare the two characters of Royal Tenenbaum and Steve Zissou, it's like one is a slightly more likable version of the other and vice versa. Uh, so it was not going to be an easy thing to follow up that movie, which was so beloved and such a breakout for this director with something that is at once the funniest movie maybe that Wes Anderson has made to date. I would, I would argue it's probably the most like laughs per, per mile of, of all of his movies. And also one of the most like deeply steeped in his whimsical style. And yet at the same time, it's also maybe the most sort of cynical, not mean spirited, but it just feels, it feels a little bit uglier than Royal Tenenbaums and Rushmore. And I think that's the, possibly the collaboration with Noah Baumbach, his co-writer on this. There's just a lot less of the kind of charm and wink and smile to this movie. And I'm not saying that to take anything away from it. I think it's actually quite an admirable thing to live with these tensions of being so funny, being so cute, so whimsical, and also being so deeply dark and having a lead character who is so deeply unlikable. And yet, you know, the triumph of that final scene in the submarine, of the film festival, the, the way it swings so hard in the sort of emotional, uh, sincere direction is really extraordinary. Like it, it, most movies can't navigate those kind of emotional and tonal shifts as nimbly as this one. And I think audiences were not really prepared for that after what he had put out so far. Um, and and I, I can understand some of the negative reaction to it. Uh, but I do think it's one that is due for uh, a lot closer attention now as we're you know, learning more about this artist and we're learning uh, to process his work in more complex ways. Yeah, so many of the Wes Anderson movies are cheeky, they're, they're pretty, they are quippy, and at the end you're like, oh, this is actually about something. Whereas... I think Life Aquatic is about something from the get-go and is not afraid, even though it's quippy and it's pretty and it's witty, it's not afraid right out the beginning to be like, this boat looks beautiful, but it's broken. You know, these the this these people feel like they're a family, but it's a they're not. They're all self-interested because Steve Sisu is a terrible documentarian and an even worse scientist. And when it swings to his redemption, it swings very quickly and it leaves the door open that he's not fully redeemed. It's not that Steve had to sacrifice something to grow. It's that Steve's impulsiveness to 
have someone not qualified to fly a helicopter that has not been serviced leads to the one person he might actually still love in this whole thing, realizing, my goodness, I sacrifice so much to get what I want. I'm a selfish bastard that feels, I think, I, I can imagine to the critics of it saying like, wait a minute, we're supposed to like him now. And I just don't agree with that assessment. In my assessment, it's been slowly earned over a long period of time in this movie. I think Wes Anderson, as a writer and a storyteller, at least if we can leap from, from the Royal Tenenbaums to the Life Aquatic, I think in both of those movies, he understands something about middle-aged men who have lost their center. They have lost the reason, the lust for life, the thing that made them successful to begin with. They have lost whatever that spark was. And in Steve Sisu, he's in search of that spark and he thinks that spark is revenge. He thinks vengeance is the way in which that he can rejuvenate, redeem the death of his best friend, and he himself could then be rejuvenated by this. And I think there's this ritualistic life, death, rebirth symbolism happening there that exists through every myth, every legend, every religion ever told. And the reality of it is, is that what really reinvigorates Steve Sisu is the life he created in Ned. And he recognizes it too late. And he recognizes it after that life is gone. And in this way, he is the most tragic of characters. He is a character that realizes that the best thing he could be isn't rich, isn't famous, it isn't uh, someone who could pick up any lovely woman he wants. It's not any of those things. The best thing that he could have been was a father to him, a boy. And when he recognizes that it's too late for him to be that, it's, it's embodied in the line where he says, the happiest I ever was, was when I was 11. This is a man trying to recapture his youth. And he had it there. You have the ability to do that with the son, to live with and through the son, and he squanders it with his own selfish aims. And I think the tragedy of this is that he realizes it so late, and he does get to be rejuvenated to me, maybe not redeemed, but rejuvenated in the end by saying, I think the movie is saying that, you know what? He's going to walk, he's going to not watch his own movie, which is to say, he's not going to watch himself. It's not about him making a movie that he can watch. Both of these movies, the both of these documentaries are relatively similar. One tragically ends with the death of Estevan and the discovery of the leopard fish, leopard shark. Jaguar shark. Jaguar shark. My God, why can't I get that right? The other ends with the death of Ned and then the documentation of this said shark. Both end with a documentary. One is a failure that feels fake and the other one is feels real. And that's because, and both are so real to Steve. Like, and he feels them. And they're so real to him. The disconnect is the first one, he was making a movie to make a movie to make money that ended horribly. In the second one, he learns it's not about these movies at all. It never has been. It's about my love for life. My love for the life of the ocean. What I love about the ocean is that it's teeming with life. And my love for my son whether he is or isn't a biological son, which the movie leaves open to interpretation. He is, no matter what, a surrogate son and a representation of Steve Sisu's forgotten youth and the regret that he carries for having squandered his youth, focusing his energies on the wrong thing. And, you know, the last thing I'll say on the subject of the character Steve Sisu and my overall does-it-hold-up to the detractors of this movie, you can't tell me that story isn't told 
sincerely and genuinely. And I just flat out disagree with those that think that this movie is trite or too silly or the claymation doesn't fit. I think this movie balances whimsy and tragedy, sadness and happiness, death and rebirth better than most movies I've ever seen in my whole life. Yeah, and I think it taps into them in such an authentic way that it can really push people to the realm of discomfort. And I think that's actually something that I admire a lot about the movie. You know, when you talk about the idea of rejuvenation and Steve reconnecting with his love of life and his love of his own youth and his own uh, sense of childish uh, wonder and awe at the universe around him, what else do we have here on the ship with him or in the theater watching the documentary but a mother who is about to give birth to a child and then a new child who is born in the wake of all of this tragedy and is there at the screening wearing a red beanie, right? So there is this literal reinvigoration of the kind of Team Zisu childish looking up to your hero that is really quite remarkable, especially given the fact that everyone who has actually directly surrounded themselves or surrounded Steve has realized that he is very much a fraud. You know, he's not even the brains of the operation Eleanor is. He claims to be this champion of all of the creatures of the sea. And for the most part, he couldn't care less about them except for what it looks like when he interacts with them on screen. Uh, and he's more interested in the celebrity and what comes of the celebrity than he is in the actual pursuit of scientific and environmental knowledge. So it is really quite extraordinary to see the people around him continue to flock to him, support him in his grief, and hold him up and help him rediscover that awe and that love, especially that you know final scene in the the climax in the submarine when he is surrounded by this very weird chosen family with whom he has been at gunpoint with pirates and with whom he has been in fights and horrible you know situations and none of them actually genuinely like him at this point and yet they love him and they support him and they put their hands on his shoulder and they join him in grief and they help to rejuvenate him so just reflecting on all of what you just put forward, on all of the symbolism there, I think it's it's quite beautiful. Yeah, and it it bums me out to learn that the Wes Anderson diehards think this is his worst movie. It just bums me out because I didn't know that until recently, and I have always loved, loved, loved this movie. And my transition into fatherhood now made me love it more. It's hard, but it, it is hard to watch. It is incredibly graphic when the movie turns its tragic turn. It does so with no whimsy or beauty. It has a gun battle that is fun and exciting, and not too long later, it has a death scene that is so realistic and tragic. And I do think... You hit the nail on the head. I think the movie makes people uncomfortable. They don't know how to feel. They're laughing at Bill Murray, but they don't like him. They think this guy stinks, but they kind of want him redeemed. They want Ned to be the hero, and he dies. And I think, I think people are very uncomfortable with it. The movie, like a lot of Wes Anderson movies, there's a lot of sexual taboo going on there. Ned and Steve are both antagonistic about the love of the same woman who happens to be a pregnant woman who happens to be pregnant with her editor's child who her editor is married. And there's this whole psychosexual dynamic between uh, Steve, Ned, and Jane. And then there is, oh my God, um, what's the character's name played by... Jeff Goldblum? Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, there's Alistair and Eleanor and Steve and that triangle of, of, of exes and lovers and spouses that is just so tangled. Uh, there's like homophobia and also like homoeroticism mixed in. And then there's Steve Kloss and Jane. There's like 
all of these like really tense like sexual relationships and like sexual tensions, I should say, which I think leads to a lot of people maybe feeling a little icky and uncomfortable. Um, that being stated, I think at the end of this, we might need to do a Midnight Myth a meditation just on Wes Anderson and Sigmund Freud, because I think there might be some things to say there. Yeah, or just Wes Anderson and sexuality. Uh, I think there's there's plenty to mine. And I think Sigmund Freud, I think, well, might, yes. be, might be apt. But Freud that, is the elephant in the room, yes. Uh, but that being stated, uh, I think that's a big part of the, you know, things going on in this movie that may lead to some of its unpopularity that... For me personally, this doesn't make me better or worse than anyone that I don't personally share or feel. Uh, that being stated, um, where do you want to... I mean, we've kind of blended the doesn't-hold-up analysis piece. They've kind of been overlapping. But where would you like to start if we wanted to transition to we agree it holds up and we agree that we think this movie is better than its critics... Where are your thoughts on, you know, trying to talk about in terms of analysis of it? I think it might be fun to really talk about the most obvious inspiration for the character of Steve Zissou and the person who this film is dedicated to, uh, particularly with the legacy that this person created around oceanography, around documentary, and around science communication. Would it be fun to talk a little bit about Jacques Cousteau? I mean, I might have done some research on that. Yeah, let's uh, let's dive in. So Steve Zissou is based on Jacques Cousteau, who I learned in preparation for the podcast, is a personal hero of Wes Anderson. And part of the inspiration behind writing this movie was to honor Jacques Cousteau, who had passed away. I have never seen any works by Jacques Cousteau. I did not know that they wore blue with those red beanies. Oh, yeah. So it's clearly meant to be Jacques Cousteau. So a little things that I learned about Jacques Cousteau, his life, and how those kind of bubbled up into the life aquatic. For starters, he was born June 11th, 1910, and he died June 25th of 1997. On July 12th of 1937, he married Simone Melacroix, his business partner. So it was his business partner first, and then they ended up married, very similar to the Eleanor-Steve Sisu relationship. In his past, he joined the French Navy. He was also a lifelong English speaker. He lived in England for a while, but he was French. He joined the French Navy, and he wanted to become a French naval pilot. And he wasn't able to pursue this dream after he had a tragic car accident, and he broke both of his arms. And that meant he wasn't able to pursue the pilot career. Now, part of his rehab was that he had to spend a lot of time swimming. And he started swimming in the ocean to rebuild his arms. And this gave him a deep connection to the sea. He was a war hero during World War II. This is something I learned, too. His brother was a Nazi collaborator and an avid anti-Semite. And after World War II was executed. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. True tragedy. Um, very much like Steve Sisu, true tragedy in his background. He improved something called the aqualung, which is, gave birth to what's called the open circuit or scuba technology. Yeah. He essentially helped uh, advance and develop the apparatus that allows people to breathe underwater. Um. He is super, super accomplished. Like, I, I really don't have time to list all of the things that he did. Not only, uh, and a lot of those were all collaborations where he didn't do them himself, but he helped with others collaborating. He helped develop technology to allow underwater filming. Um, he really wanted the underground world to be made above ground, the underwater world to be above water. He believed passionately that if people could see all the life down there, if he could explore the life in the ocean, that it would make people appreciate that life more and connect to it more and in hopes get more people into science and oceanography. He was a pretty phenomenal person. 
Um, he did lose. He had several children. He had a favorite son that he did lose who was flying a flying boat. I don't know what that means. And they crashed off the, the coast in Portugal, very similar to Ned. Um, so he did also his first wife died of cancer. And then he ended up marrying or I died of illness young. I, I don't remember if it's cancer or not. I didn't write that down. So but ended up dying young, but he did remarry and have several other children. And before this movie was made, he himself passed away. He was someone that is larger in li than life and was able to find this synthesis between advancing technology that would allow human beings to dive deeper into the ocean and advancing filmography so that we could capture the images there and then was able to nimbly piece it together to make a cohesive story that people were interested in the documentaries. He's an Oscar winner. Um, so he was a truly mind-blowingly accomplished documentarian, oceanographer, a seaman to his core, and lived this amazing life. And so many of the beats of his life kind of mimic Steve Sisu's. Yeah, and what is, I think... You know, you mentioned that he has all of these accomplishments, but maybe one of the most remarkable things about him is that while being this incredible scientist and also a great uh, artist, he was a great communicator, right? He is one of the chief voices of popular science. He wasn't just speaking to scientific communities or oceanographic communities or uh, you know, marine biologists. He was speaking to common people. He's on the level with such people as Carl Sagan and today Neil deGrasse Tyson and Bill Nye. He's one of the voices who brought science down to regular people and particularly kids and got children interested in the ocean. He is the reason why everyone wants to be a marine biologist when they grow up because this voice and this calm, steady hand that brought us down into the ocean uh, was able to open up this whole new world for us. You know, we've said it before, I think, on the podcast that the the oceans remain something like 80% unexplored, and most of our planet is deep sea. So there is so much that we don't know. It's really like it's truly another planet under there. And to be the the, the revealer of the mysteries of the deep and be that and be a light for young people is really a powerful thing. You know, I think that more than anything other than probably Wes Anderson is a fan is why David Bowie's music accompanies this. Uh, even in the uh, Portuguese reimaginings by Seu Jorge, these are songs about traveling in other worlds. These are songs about being on odysseys through space. And at the same time, we are exploring the whimsical, magical, stop-motion, undersea universe with Steve Zissou, even if he, at this point in his career, has stopped seeing the magic and the wonder. So I'm glad that you brought that in to talk about Jacques Cousteau's career, because I think that can't be said enough, that it is so meaningful to be a person with great knowledge, great experience, and great accomplishment uh, it, it goes so much further to be able to communicate that with populations who can be then ushered across the threshold into wanting to learn more. And that's what Steve was for so many people. That's what Steve was for 11 and a half year old Ned who wrote him that letter. That's what Steve was for Jane when she was growing up. She has a poster of him in her bedroom. And so to see this kind of washed up, unmoored version of Jacques Cousteau is in itself a tragedy, even if you don't take into account the losses that he suffers throughout the course of the film. It's a tragedy for those who come upon him to see their hero just floundering. Oh my God, how many water puns did I make in just the last three sentences? Several. <laughs> Anyway, so, yeah, I just wanted to comment on that and share just a little bit more. A few things I want to extrapolate out of that. Thank you for saying that. It is often that 
the custodians and the keepers of knowledge almost have a fetish-sized relationship to it that it's for them. Think of all of the uh, the things the Jedi are accused of being bad. They have the knowledge of the Force. The Jedi hold it. No one else can have it. You must like, become a Jedi to have this knowledge. And um, many ways, science, I think in particular history, uh, it are these disciplines where they talk to the other people within that discipline for the other people of that discipline to advance that discipline. And that is important work that must and need to be done. But to me, it is far more powerful to take that knowledge and find a way to share it with as many people as you can so that everyone can be inspired by it. And that is what popular science, and for me too, also like popular history is able to do because I'm much more of a history buff than a science buff. That's why I'm relating it to that. Is that if you you create this great historical um, manuscript and the only people who ever read it are other historians, then does it matter? Or do you write a history that can go on to inspire, I don't know, the first ever hip hop American history musical? What's a better piece of history? You know, and I am kind of cheekily referring to the biography that inspired Lin-Manuel Miranda to write Hamilton. Similar with Jacques Cousteau, and we mentioned Carl Sagan, and we mentioned Neil deGrasse Tyson. And Crash Course. And Crash Course on YouTube. That's great. (laughs) The ability to communicate knowledge to people in a way that inspires them to want to learn more is so powerful. And film and media and, you know, podcasting, excuse me, has the ability to do that in ways never before seen. And Jacques Cousteau was able to inspire generations of marine scientists. And that is so important and and so amazing. And that's in some ways, I think, better than when scientists are debating among scientists how to better science. Well, but if you can inspire kids to come join into that, and how do you do that is to me the confluence of certain big philosophical things happening. It's the confluence of multimedia, mass marketing communication, epistemology, which challenges what do we know, how do we know it, ethics, now that we know something, what's the right way to go about living and communicating to others. There's these huge philosophical forces that come all combine to someone like Jacques Cousteau and with Life Aquatic, it's about someone that has lost their ability to understand what they're doing actually matters. And the life of and legacy, which I just recently learned about with Jacques Cousteau, is a life and legacy that is so impressive, like jaw-dropping just reading about this man and what he was able to do and the accomplishments that he did and how None of those accomplishments were individualistic. They were all collective. They were all about him working with and through others. There's not a single thing breakthrough that he did that wasn't because of such and such or so and so. And I thought that was a way that this person brought these different philosophical and ideological like capabilities together. Let's innovate in diving technology. Let's innovate in oceanography. Let's innovate in um in film filmology let's take all of these things and let's work them together and what are we going to do about it with all of these like things coming together let's make movies that people can show children in school and i just like totally nerd out on that and think it's so amazing yeah it really is but it's also like a lot of pressure on a person to be that guy, right? So you can understand why a Steve Zissou in his middle age is breaking down under some of that pressure and is starting to feel like, you know, maybe being an oceanographic celebrity isn't enough because when you lose a little bit of that spark, what do you have left? I want to take the thread of Cousteau just a little bit further because, you know, we haven't even talked about the ship in this movie yet, 
right? The extremely amazing set that was constructed in like an airplane hangar to show the cross section of Steve Zissou's ship, the Belafonte, which is uh, constructed very much like a stage set, but so elaborate. It's so elaborate that it was clearly like plumbed and like given electricity throughout all the different rooms. You can see it all in one kind of establishing shot. And then there's a really remarkable uh, one take scene that moves through it where Ned and uh, Steve are kind of arguing and they move through all of the rooms of the ship and there's something happening in every room on the ship and it doesn't cut. It's just really extraordinary filmmaking. And I'm challenging M from Verbal Diorama to do an episode on it because I just really want to hear more about how they made the ship and was it worth it? Um, but the ship is called the Belafonte, right? It's called the Belafonte after Harry Belafonte, God rest his soul, just passed quite recently. And Belafonte was the, the singular voice of Calypso music in the West. We love his songs. We love how they close out Beetlejuice and we can always uh, get down with some Harry Belafonte. But the name of the ship in The Life Aquatic is a clever nod, of course, to Jacques Cousteau's actual ship and floating laboratory, the Calypso. Belafonte, Calypso, there you go. Calypso, of course, is the name of a goddess or a nymph from Homer's The Odyssey. And this isn't the first time in just the last couple of months that the Odyssey has come up between the two of us talking about movies on the podcast. So I feel like it's worth spending just a little bit of time with it here, particularly since we're looking at a story about a man lost at sea. I, think I the, love that. Yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, you're good. I think the really obvious literary connection here, of course, is Moby Dick. I think the trailer sets you up to think that this is Moby Dick. The premise of the movie sets you up to think that this is a Moby Dick story because it's about you know, a man who is seeking a, a shark who cannot be found and it is, the purpose is revenge and we're alluded to that we're on this lunatic suicide mission with a madman, but it's not Moby Dick. The jaguar shark is a MacGuffin, if anything. It's not what the movie's actually about. This is more, in my opinion, a story about a journey, even if that journey has very little actual direction about it. Uh, a journey where we continue to be blown off course, either by greater forces like winds or lesser forces like pirates, where we continue to be diverted by having to rescue the Bond Company stooge from the Ping Islands, or we check in to Porta Patois to talk to our ex-wife, uh, very much echoing the kind of Circe interlude of the Odyssey where Odysseus spends a bunch of time with Circe and is tempted to stay with her. He spends some time with Eleanor on Porta Patois and reflects that maybe they should have had children. I don't think this is a one-to-one -one adaptation of the Odyssey, but I think this is, like many stories, playing in a lot of the same themes while having a lesser man than a Greek hero face up against the challenges that a Greek hero might. I love that. So a few things kind of flesh out that because I, I think you're on to the, the mythological lens of Wes Anderson. And I, I think one of the reasons I like Wes Anderson's stories is, yeah, they're cheeky and pretty and stylistically unique, but I do think he uses mythological language as opposed to realistic language or language connotates uh, the, the script. I think he uses mythological techniques. Yeah. And symbol and symbols to tell his story, which is why they kind of just hit me in a deep core and I can't really explain why. And I think the Odyssey is a, one of the greatest stories of the ancient world. It's about a man trying to find his way home and it's about the external forces pushing him away from the journey home and keeping him with one foot in the magical and bizarre and, and strange 
and one foot in the regular world. And he's constantly Odysseus, who's the main character of the Odyssey, is constantly left to choose. Do I go deeper into the magical or do I go more back to the mundane? In that respect, I think Steve Sisu is very much an Odyssean-like figure. Odysseus survives the challenges through wit and grit and determination. In many ways, so does Steve Sisu. Uh, Odysseus loses crew members in the way that Steve Sisu also loses crew members. And Odysseus is ultimately trying to return home and claim his birthright. And in many ways, Steve Sisu is trying to reclaim his birthright, which is the best documentarian oceanographer in the world, which has been kind of supplanted by Jeff Goldblum's character, who does what? Courts his wife. What is the thing that when Odysseus finally makes it home that he finds? He finds there are suitors doing what? Courting his wife. And so there is this, this sort of connection there. You know, a lot of people, when the research up to this podcast do compare this to Moby Dick. Moby Dick is about vengeance driving a man mad to the point where it ruins him and everyone around him. Steve Sisu forgives the shark and reconnects with nature. He gets to the belly of the beast and he says, it's not a beast at all, it's just an animal and I love it. And I hope it knows what it means to me and returns, which is much more like Odysseus traveling to the underworld, which he does. And he meets his friend Achilles who died in the Trojan war. And Achilles is just like to keep it short and simple. It's just like, dude, this underworld sucks. Get out of here. Go back and live. Don't be sad. Don't stay here with the ghosts get back and live and get back there and live a really good life. You don't want to be dead. And in many ways, the death of Ned and the uh, uh, witness of the leopard shark, not target shark. I got it right. No, you didn't. It's the, a jaguar shark. Oh God. <laughs> the jaguar shark. Oh my God. I'm a terrible podcast host. Um, in many ways that, is a very similar journey. And Steve Sisu is a character who's, and the way Wes Anderson tells the story of him is one that's always got a foot in the bizarre and strange and magical and a foot in the regular. What is the Bond stooge if not a representation of normalization of standard company protocol that must happen when you go on an adventure juxtaposed to the claymation of the fish. It's such an intrusion of the real world, of capitalism, of commerce, that you don't ever see in an action-adventure movie to that extent. It's like, we need to do an actual interlude where they go and secure Bond to finish the documentary and also we have to rescue this guy from pirates in a shootout on an abandoned island. It's just such a weird uh, mishmash that Wes Anderson does. And yet he casts Bud Court and it's freaking incredible. Like it's such a great, weird little interlude and a weird intrusion of the mundane world into the magical action adventure. And if the Tenenbaums are about these sort of demigods that hold dominion over these major areas, the... Life Aquatic is about the hero a few generations represented, uh, pardon me, a few generations um, departed from the actual gods trying to make their way and traverse this world and forgetting that the world, though dangerous, is also beautiful. Yeah, I love it. Um, speaking of the world being beautiful, I just want to talk briefly about you know, we've talked around it, I think, but I want to talk about the submarine scene and the encounter with the jaguar shark because for me, that's where the whole movie crystallizes. All faults are forgiven. And I mean that in terms of any faults you may lay on the movie and also any faults you may lay on Steve and the rest of the characters. 
it is such a sublime scene where Deep Search, Jacqueline, the submarine, which holds, I think, a maximum capacity of six people and then is carrying like 15 to 18 people, sinks down and they see the beauty and the wonder that is the jaguar shark. This creature that killed and ate Esteban and took so much from the crew of the Belafonte. And yet when Steve sees it, looks it in its eyes, he is overcome with the awe and wonder and beauty of this monster, of this uh, wonder, right? It's, it's such an overwhelming emotional scene and one where everything kind of came together for me. And I was just really moved by the fact that it's a confrontation with an overwhelmingly large, beautiful, unusual, rare specimen of nature that officially turns Steve's heart and officially turns the people in the submarine who are, for all intents and purposes, people he has wronged, enemies of him, turns them into his family. That raw, extraordinary encounter with something bigger than you, something in nature, something non-human, but having personhood of itself, having meaning, having worth of itself, is what changes everyone to recognize how meaningful the connections that they've made are, even if those connections have been extremely fraught. And I just want to bring in a quote from Jacques Cousteau that I think illustrates it, which is, quote, the sea, the great unifier, is man's only hope. Now, as ever before, the old phrase has a literal meaning. We are all in the same boat, end quote. I'd say drop the mic, Ay. but they're on stands. They are on stands. That was beautiful, love. I, I think it's time for all of us, moviegoers, lovers of art, critical thinkers, to, to ask ourselves, really, why are we here? What is it all about? What are we doing it for? And... We can all answer that question in our own individual ways. But at the end of the day, it is about fostering communication and connection and empathy to help make the human experience less tragic and more divine. And I think this movie encapsulates that drama in a way that many of the great stories before have been able to do from the place of Sophocles to the plays of Shakespeare to the great dramas and comedies of Hollywood. I think this movie is able to ask the questions about what does it mean to be here now? What does it mean to be blown away by how beautiful the world is? And then lose that connection to it and decide you want to dominate and control it and exploit it and exploit all those around you so you could do more dominating and controlling and exploiting. And then to remember the beauty of just one fish and one life can change the way you look at the world and can change the way you think about all of us floating through space together trying to make meaning out of this. And I think I can't think of a more necessary movie, at least for me, I can't think of a more necessary tragedy, a one that's more reflective of the modern condition than the life aquatic. I want to just with some final thoughts here, I just want to give a huge shout out to the women of Team Zisu, official and unofficial, Eleanor and Jane. And I want to say Anne-Marie, the uh, script supervisor who never has a shirt on and who's constantly calling Steve a psychopath for taking them into unprotected waters. 
I just want to throw some respect on the women because they are the only ones keeping this ragtag team of diaper babies in line. The toxic masculinity would spill over in such abundance if it weren't for the well-placed uh, smack of one of these women who know what they're doing, know what they're talking about, and know how to keep the men alive. <laughs> so which big is shout out it, to the women. Which is exactly how it would be if you and I had a uh, a big ship and we made a documentary, you'd be keeping me alive. And I'd be like, I want all the glory. Yeah, That's absolutely. exactly how it would be. Eleanor is the brains of Team Zisu. Um, until next time. Stay alive, stay afloat.